This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Josh Rye, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Carl Watson and Rural Lucian, who both just made one-time contributions to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 480 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Paul Filippo. He's the author of many science fiction books, including the Steampunk Trilogy, Ribofunk, and WikiWorld, and his reviews have appeared in Asimov's, Inner Zone, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. His humorous essays are collected in the book Plumage from Pegasus, the all-new 25th anniversary collection, and together with Damien Broderick, he wrote the book Science Fiction, The 101 Best Novels, 1985-2010. to And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, The Summer Thieves. And now here's our interview with Paul Filippo. All right, so we're here with Paul Filippo. Welcome to the show. Oh, what a pleasure to be here, David. Okay, so your new novel is called The Summer Thieves. So how'd this book come about? Well, um, first of all, I like to uh, always kind of challenge myself with new uh, arenas of, uh, of fiction writing. And I had just finished um, doing a, a series of crime novels, uh, which which in itself was a departure from my usual standard uh Fantastica, you know, whether it be fantasy or steampunk or, or something else. But having done those three crime novels, I was looking to get back into, uh, SF. And I realized that I hadn't, had never really done a traditional space opera. And, uh, so that was the mode that I decided to try. And, uh, my uh, role model was uh, a writer who's uh, lo- beloved by many, uh, Jack Vance. I wanted specifically to try to do the same kind of space opera, exotic and, and uh, uh, Baroque and ironic that Jack Vance had pioneered uh, so well and uh, with my own added interpretations, of course. So it was basically a desire to move into some territory that I had, had not previously explored. Yeah, I, uh, I've only read a little bit of Jack Vance. I read a, a planetary romance novel of his called Inferio, which yep. I really loved. Yep. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's kind of going to sound dumb. I'm dying to read The Dying Earth. Um, <laughs> so I'll probably do that soon. I've always wanted to read that because yeah. one of my, you know, I, I really love Gene Wolfe's book of the new sun. I've read of it five course. times. Oh yeah. That's, um, you couldn't, you couldn't pick a better, uh, uh, a better classic to fall in love with. Uh, Gene Wolfe was just remarkable and, uh, a lovely man in person too, just very uh, much like his writing. You know, there was no distinction between the man and the uh, the prose, I believe. Yeah, and so he always, you know, Book of the New Sun. If people don't know, he always said um, that for him, Jack Vance's Dying Earth was like the golden book. It was the sort of book that he discovered yes. as a kid that was just always the most magical to him. Well, uh, the Dying Earth is um, a, a strange hybrid because. Um, 
it has so many elements that seem fantastical, and yet it is uh, really more or less pure quill uh, science fiction. It's set, you know, within the uh, uh, the postulated uh, stellar time span of Earth's uh, existence, and uh, there are aliens and uh, uh, remnants of interstellar uh, contact and so forth, but yet uh, he manages to make it read almost like a fantasy novel. So that was a, an amazing accomplishment in itself, and, and you can obviously see the same uh, thing happening in, in the Gene Wolfe books. Yeah, and so those are the, the Jack Vance books that I know or, or know, at least by reputation, the best. But are there other ones that you were kind of drawing on for, for this? Yes, he, um, Vance was amazing. Like, um, uh, I, I hardly dare to compare myself to him, but like myself, he, he seemed to uh, uh, have a, a wide-ranging uh kind of gypsy soul that uh, moved into a, a different uh, host of mediums. He wrote mysteries, uh, excellent mysteries, uh, and uh, he wrote pure fantasy, uh, and uh, he wrote uh, some near-future stories, which uh, some of which were very satirical and ironic, and uh, he... he um, wrote, uh, you know, a good dozen uh, pure quill space operas as well. The uh, Alastor series is um, uh, kind of a, a role model uh, for for me and uh, one that folks should investigate. And he um, had the habit of, you know, having built this in- incredible universe, he would uh, then explore it with different sets of characters. And I was hoping to do that if I write any sequels uh, to The Summer Thieves, but then my... Uh, you always have to have marketplace considerations. My agent told me, what? You're a fool. Don't throw away these characters. They're great. You need to bring <laughs> them back. So now now I guess I'm doomed to uh, 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 bring these uh, uh, my troop of actors out of the closet again for the next outing if I do one. So, uh, But Vance, Vance uh, would, would frequently, you know... Um, uh, just toss away one cast of characters and introduce a whole new set. So that's kind of intriguing that he did that. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely was, you know, on the, on the cover, it says that this, that this book or on the uh, back jacket copy, it says yeah. that it evokes the style of Gene Wolfe and Jack Vance. And that's, that's definitely what kind of piqued my curiosity to read it. And this is the first book of yours that I read. So I don't know how, um, how typical the style is of, of other things that you've written, but it, you have a lot of really kind of colorful, obscure vocabulary in this book, which is certainly something oh, that well, thank does, you. I think Vance does as well. Thank you so much, David. That you know, I have to kind of tone it down. I've I've had the occasional story or two where uh, people have complained that it's just a little too baroque and ornate, and and I empathize with that. Uh, it it can uh, uh, get in the way of uh, the pure apprehension and enjoyment of the plot. So I do try to tone it down, but uh, Michael Moorcock, the the great and wonderful uh, grandmaster of of British SF, um, who was kind enough to provide a blurb, he really uh, complimented the language and said that was a big hook into the book for him. So I feel that that maybe I I walk the tightrope pretty well between being uh, uh, intriguingly uh, ornate and and, you know, I didn't fall off into the utterly uh, uh, strange Baroque uh, category. So uh, to me, you know, I, I tried to do this. I One of my 
uh, better known books is called Ribofunk, and it's uh, set in the near future. It spans about 100 years of our future, um, where genetic engineering and other biological uh, innovations are uh, are paramount. You know, they've kind of superseded uh, silicon technology. But in any case, in Ribo, Ribofunk is full of uh, future slang, and uh, to me, that the language uh, is always a tool for estrangement. You know, they when people talk about the uh, uh, allure of science fiction, one of the terms is cognitive estrangement and uh you like to feel that you've been plucked up you know you're not in kansas anymore you've been plucked up out of your day-to-day life and you're in this new exotic world and how do you um uh how does the writer convey that he doesn't have visuals he doesn't uh uh, you know, he can only, it's only words on the page. So sometimes if you, if you, um, have a judicious use of, uh, uh strange vocabulary or, uh, invented, uh, neologisms, you can, you can kind of evoke this strangeness. And you see that, um, like maybe in a book like Dune, you know, uh, where, uh, so much of the planet, uh, Arrakis is, uh, we need to learn new terms to uh, to understand that whole environment. So, yes, the language and the style are, are crucial, I think, to making uh, this kind of strange, exotic atmosphere. Do you, do you just know all these words, or do you have like a thesaurus you or know, OED I, or something? <laughs> I surprise myself. You really have to trust your unconscious. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, obviously as a kid, as, as a – fiction besotted kid and teenager you know i would always uh like ace all the vocabulary tests in high (laughs) school and go out looking for new and exotic words and uh somehow i I think all that uh, preparatory groundwork um has uh has sunk in and i'm still learning uh new terms i remember very distinctly um uh there's a writer I love who unfortunately has kind of retired from the field. His name is uh, Al Adanasio. And if you really want um, uh, <laughs> some strange, uh, uh, rewarding reading experiences, you should pick up Adanasio's Radix trilogy. R-A-D-I-X is the name of the first book. And But, but <clears throat> if you think my vocabulary is something, you should read Adanasio. He's just amazing. I remember I learned the word Spall, S-P-A-L-L from him. And I, I encountered it and, um, it means like to flake off or, sh- or shatter, you know, the surface fragments of things. And when I read that, it was just like, man, this is such a great word. And I, I think, you know, I can use it without seeming derivative or, or, or over erudite or whatever. But, uh, uh, so I'm still picking up words from, from my reading. And, uh, but occasionally, uh, you know, when you're writing, uh, uh, fiction, you, um, there's the famous saying that you can only see like a hundred yards ahead when you're writing something and then you move on and then you see the next hundred yards and so on. And sometimes it's like that on a sentence by sentence level. And, uh, Chip Delaney, the, uh, the famous, uh, SF writer, talks a little bit about this when he talks about how science fiction stories are constructed somehow 
like a word, you lay down a word and it kind of draws the next word out of your memory uh, in a very arcane and spooky and mysterious process. So lots of times I do, um, uh, you know, I do resort to like, hey, I need a synonym for, uh, I don't know, whatever, valley or something or mountain or, you know, so I'll <laughs> look up something a little more arcane. But then other times I just, it's really kind of spooky. I just surprise myself. Well, you mentioned, yeah, that you have a Borb from Michael Moorcock on the cover, and then you have Borbs, you mentioned Samuel R. Delaney. I mean, there, there's Borbs about your work from him and Harlan Ellison and William yeah. Gibson. It's this real who's who of uh, authors there. Um, well, yeah, well, you know, um, uh, some of those fellows, uh, like Chip Delaney and Moorcock, I grew up, you know, I was a teenager falling in love with their work, and then when I was lucky enough to attain some kind of uh, uh, professional status myself, I'd, I'd run into these guys at uh, conventions and I'd be, you know, total fanboy, just like barely able to talk. But then after a while they became friends. And that is just to me such a uh, wonderful and mysterious part of, of this whole community is that uh, if you're lucky enough to, uh, uh, to make a, a little name for yourself and show that you've got a few chops that you can, you can earn a place at the, uh, the table with these grandmasters and just, uh, and just sit and listen to them, uh, uh, and share their, share their lifetime experience. I heard you say that you were on like this email list for, um, authors who were in the mirror shades anthology that's been going for. Yeah. Well, it's funny. There were, um, there were, I believe 11 or 12 of us in the mirror shades, uh, anthology and one fellow, John, uh, Tom Maddox has, uh, has dropped out. He's, uh, he, he doesn't write fiction anymore and he's, uh, We've lost contact for him. But one day, a few years ago, you know, I would have intermittent communications with uh, with my fellows as, as the need arose. Uh, uh, but then I realized, um, I said, why not? We never all converse anymore. And we had this uh, shared past and we did something and achieved something. And so I just put together, it's, it's, it's not even a listserv. It's just basically a, a <laughs> CC. It's basically a CC list. And every once in a while, I or someone else will, uh, see a relevant article and we'll just broadcast it, uh, to the, to the 10 or 11 of us who are, who are still, uh, on the right side of the soil here and, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, it'll provoke, you know, either a little discussion or a large discussion or no discussion. And, uh, it's just kind of cool to think that, um, uh, uh, all of us, except for Tom Maddox is still, you know, here it is, uh, 1984, 85, and, and it's almost 40 years later and we're all still, um, uh, have careers of a sort and are all still writing. Uh, John Shirley's, uh, new book, Stormland was excellent. Uh, Bruce Sterling just had a story collection come out this year. Uh, Bill Gibson, of course, nobody, you know, needs to be uh, informed <laughs> of his achievements. And, uh, so I think, I think we all hang together, uh, just out of sheer, uh, wonderment that we survived the past 40 years and are still, <laughs> still being productive. And, uh, you know, we lament the state of the world from time to time, as as all of us do, and as uh, 
we all have reason to do these days. But yeah, it's kind of inspirational just to have a, a bunch of buddies that, and especially the same generation. I think, I think Bill Gibson might be the oldest among us. Uh, but, uh, the rest of us are pretty much of the, of the same age. I mean, you mentioned in there that one of your best known books is Ribofunk. And I came across this thing online. It's called Ribofunk, the manifesto that you wrote. And it kind of sort of grew out of, it was a response to cyberpunk or could you talk about that? Yeah, of course. That's a, thanks. Thanks, David. That's a, a pleasure to talk about that. So, so, uh, Bruce Sterling at the time that cyberpunk was breaking big, he was famously, uh, producing a, a fanzine called cheap truth. And, uh, he was, um, he, um, Cheap Truth only lasted about, I don't know, 12, 14, 15 issues. I think all of it has been digitized. You can probably track it down online. Uh, uh, there's a wonderful website, eFanzines, which, uh, has everything from like 1930s fanzines that people have scanned in all the way up to people use it as a broadcast platform. Like they produce their new issue and they, they pump it out to eFanzine so you can read it there. But, uh, you should find, you should find copies of Cheap Truth there, I believe. But in any case, uh, Bruce ended his, um, uh, fanzine Cheap Truth, uh, when it was done, the last issue, there was like an editorial and he said, let's everybody go out and, and make new fanzines and new manifestos and new art and, um, uh, you know, carry this work forward. So I was motivated to do this uh, Ribofunk manifesto, which was, uh, you know, this was all pre-internet. Uh, I, I can't even remember if we had email at the time. Uh, maybe rudimentary email, but, uh, in any case, you know, it was still a, a paper and print and snail mail kind of environment. And so, um, I started thinking being immersed in cyberpunk, I said, well, you know, we've, we've covered, um, Silicon technology, digital technology, uh, we've speculated on it, but there's been, uh, uh, except for maybe Bruce, uh, Bruce's own, uh, schismatrix, uh, series, there's been, and, and also Blood Music by Greg Bear was cited in my piece. Uh, you know, aside from that, we've kind of ignored this upcoming uh, biological revolution, uh, which, which we could see on the horizon. It's, it's still not totally here, obviously, but I think it's accelerating. It's, it, it's happened a little slower than we might have first imagined. But I said, let me, let me do this kind of, half serious, half tongue in cheek, uh, polemic, polemical, uh, uh, broadsheet and circulate it and see what people think. So off I, off I went to Kinko's after, uh, <laughs> producing this on like my dot matrix and pasting, literally cutting and pasting in some, a couple of illos. And off I, off I go to Kinko's and Xerox like a hundred copies and, and mail them out to various people. And, uh, it was reprinted you know, contemporaneously in, in a few, um, sources. And, um, it, it seemed to, uh, you know, it seemed to touch the instincts of a few people because there was a small flourishing of, uh, of such fiction, um, uh, uh, after, after that broadside. Although if you look, um, 
On Wikipedia, under biopunk, you'll see that that's kind of the name uh, that's come to dominate this subgenre of science fiction. And I think they have a line in the Wikipedia article that says something like, uh, Paul DeFilippo tried to get everybody to call it ribofunk, but, but nobody did. So it was a, it was a not, not 100% successful uh, 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 revolution uh, under that name. But under the name biopunk, you know, it became a recognized subgenre of um, science fiction. And so having, um, having written this polemical broadside, I said, gee, you know, it's kind of inherent or, or imperative on me to uh, – uh, uh, carry forth my own mandate and see if I could actually produce uh, such uh, fiction. And so, you know, the story started coming out one by one, appearing in various magazines. And when I had a volume's worth, uh, I collected them. Right. And I mean, this your new book, The Summer Thieves, it has these Spice characters who are yes. all kind of animal-human hybrids. So it's obviously it's an idea that you are continuing to... Yes, to, abso- like, absolutely. To I, think, I think there's... Um, uh, the science fiction writer Greg- Gregory Benford said back around the time I wrote the manifesto, uh, he said, uh, biology will be to the 21st century what computers were to the 20th century. And I really, I really think that, uh, uh, that, that that observation remains accurate and, uh, uh, valid. So, um, uh, I like to continue working in this area. It seems, uh, you know, we're all, it's like that famous Terry Bisson story. They're made of meat, you know, where the uh, yeah. aliens are amazed that humans are actually made of this wet, squishy stuff. And, uh, that's our, that's our destiny until we're all living in some kind of Greg Egan, uh, future where we're all just uploaded in a virtual, uh, simulation. So, you know, we're stuck with these bodies and we may as well, and, and the, uh, hum, the ecosphere around us. So we may as well, uh, learn to, uh, uh, if we're going to manipulate it, we may as well, uh, do it right. You know, it's like, um, uh, uh, that observation that Stuart Brand made, I think, uh, uh, back around the time of the Whole Earth Catalog, if we're going to act like gods, we have to do it right, you know. So uh, it, it's imperative on us to kind of uh, study these uh, possibilities and and uh, anticipate them so that we don't fall into the traps and we uh, manifest this new kind of technology uh, with some with some sanity and some some wisdom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to set up the Summer Thieves a little bit more because um, so so it says on the book it says the Summer Thieves, the novel of the Quinnery. So can you tell us what is the Quinnery? So uh, the Quinnery is a word that exists, but I've repurposed it, and it's not um, quite a government. It's not quite a, a, a series of NGOs. It's not quite corporations. It's kind of a. a uh, a body that uh, blends all of those. And this was my initial inspiration, and I'm looking at it right now. Um, uh, current day essayists and, and surveyors of the social media IT scene uh, identify uh, the five top firms that kind of rule our, our digital lives. And uh, uh, it's Google... Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. Uh, 
So those those are the five firms that uh, are deemed to be, um, uh, you know, our overlords these days in a way, beneficent or 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 malicious or otherwise. But having um, uh, having realized that, it struck me that that the five areas that those um, uh, firms uh, kind of cover. Uh, could be tinkered with and kind of you could you could cover all of human existence with like five categories of uh, of activity and so I speculated that you know in in most space operas you either have like a, a very retro setup you know the the famous imperial setup uh, of uh, Star Wars um, and uh, and other space operas, or then you have you know the Star Trek setup where it's very much kind of like modern liberalism uh, spread across the stars and uh, voting and democracies and so on. But occasionally you get you get some really strange interstellar or galactic polities and. Uh, um, uh, Ian Banks was probably uh, most famous uh, with his culture series. So having thought along those lines, I said, what if there were five, uh, and it's kind of hard to call them just firms or corporations, but what if there were five entities that weren't governments, nobody elected them, uh, and they weren't, they weren't charities or, or NGOs or anything like that, but they were just five entities that kind of divided up human existence um, uh, among them. And uh, so that's the basis of the quinnery is that uh, these these five groups, which I name in, in the book, and uh, I'm blanking on my, on my own uh, terms from now. One was oh, called... Well, I actually, I have it here in front of me because yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, so this is how I read it. You can yeah. tell me if this is right or not, yeah, but course. I thought... The Indrins are in charge of information technology. Yep. The Polys are in charge of biotechnology. Yep. The Smalls are in charge of nanotechnology. The Brickers are in charge of real estate, and the Motivators are in charge of security. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're um, and they all, you know, their duties or or remits are kind of diffuse. Like they uh, uh, they have main pursuits, and then there are all these ancillary things that they might. Uh, uh, they might uh, carry out. So um, I tried to early on in the in the very first chapter or two, I tried to give a little illustration of how they would work when the uh, the main character experiences kind of a uh, a planetary invasion or a home home invasion type scenario, and uh, the Quinnery arrives to shut down this. And so they, you know, they're there and they don't interfere unless they're unless um, they're requested to or or they need you know, in pursuit of their own goals. So it's kind of a, uh, I was trying for a, almost, uh, uh, not, not an anarchy, but almost kind, uh, and it's not libertarianism, but I was trying for it just to summon up a method of coordination or integration that could unite. Because if you think about a, a true galactic, um, uh, uh, polity, you wonder how the heck, you know, could you ever integrate everything, uh, uh, among all the planets? So this is once, you know, and I'm not, I have no degrees in, uh, poli sci or economics or any of those wonderful abstruse disciplines. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a, you know, and, uh, unrepentant 
liberal arts English major, so this is all uh, this is all out of my my reading and out of my own uh, head and experience. So we'll see. We'll see if people buy it as plausible. But I did want you know it it gets so tiresome to have the Federation or the Empire. That's just um, I understand why people you know stick to those because they are kind of iconic, uh, archetypical. Uh, means of organization but it but it seems to me that you know if you're going to speculate you should you should try to break new ground in your speculations yeah one well, one thing I, th- I really liked about this was that it has a lot of the features the common features of a planetary romance or space opera um but with this this like sort of um underspine of hard sf rationalization to it so you know you you have the um you, know, you have like a desert planet or an ice planet with a breathable atmosphere, yep. but it's because the planets were all terraformed yes. long ago by a super advanced alien race. And you have, you know, you have uh, slavery has come back, but it's because you have these, these hybrid workers who are not considered fully human. And so it all kind of, you know, it kind of right. like recreates that kind of classic setting, but, but with a little bit more uh, rigorous thinking behind it. Well, thank you, David. I, I did try, you know, because we, um, you know, there are certain archetypes and, and tropes that just uh, uh, are eternal and appeal to uh, a reader's sense of adventure. But, um, you know, in this day and age, we need to uh, rethink uh, the basis of these and whether there's any plausibility or whether they could be made to seem halfway plausible for the sake of uh, telling a good story. So, um, you know, that is that is imperative for uh, a science fiction writer is to, you know, just, uh, um, I forget which poet said this, but, uh, it, one of the classic, uh, poets of the 20th century, his, uh, dictum, it might've been Ezra Pound, but the, his dictum was make it new. And, you know, it's, uh, cliches are, are, are just not acceptable these days because, um, we need to rethink, uh, a lot of the, uh, bases of our society and our interactions. And so if you can uh, put a little spin on something and justify it scientifically, I think that uh, uh, that's imperative for a good science fiction writer to do. Yeah. I had just a couple of details that I wanted to ask you about. So one of them is there's a, um, a sort of liberationist hybrid uh, writer named Thomas Equinus with an yeah. E. So presumably a horse, yes. you know, horse hybrid. Do you, do you remember coming he, up with that he name? He showed, yeah, he showed up in another one of my stories. He's always been kind of an offstage uh, character. Uh, so I guess he's in one of the Ribofunk stories. So I guess that makes uh, uh, that makes uh, the Summer Thieves uh, part, a canonical part of the <laughs> Ribofunk uh, series, even though I didn't really have that in mind. But yeah, it's a it's a bad pun <laughs> on a famous uh, 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 Catholic. Um, Christian philosopher Thomas Aquinas, but it was irresistible once it um, <laughs> once it came into my head, and it was probably I remember jotting it down in my notebook. I keep a pocket notebook with me pretty much twenty four seven. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it's not in the bedroom with me for for sleep purposes, but other than that, it's it's by my side all the time. And I think I remember jotting down the name in my notebook long before I had any story uh, to go with it. But he figures in uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, oh, it's the story called Strange Oases. 
uh, he shows up in, in that story. And that's the title of one of my collections, by the way. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. And then like the next thing I wanted to ask you about was that there's this swimming pool that they go to where there are kind of blocks of water suspended in the air with force fields. And so you yeah. can kind of swim through one block and then drop down and fall through the uh-huh. air and fall into the next block. Yeah. I was just wondering, how did you come up with that? That, that was, I, you know, so much of, um, uh, so much of, um, the writing, once it recedes into the past, it, it assumes the quality of a dream. I remember, you know, doing that chapter and, um, saying, okay, this is a resort. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, chapter you speak of, it's set at a resort. Okay. So they've got a swimming pool. So now having said that, you know, it would have been perfectly acceptable, an in-ground swimming pool, maybe with a few uh, fancy uh, bells and whistles and stuff. But your your instinct, you know, I've been doing this for, for 40 years now, and uh, your instinct has to be like, let's amp it up. Let's push the dials to 11. You know, we can't, your first, um, even though even though I'm a, a, a great a believer in in uh, Zen Buddhism, you know. If I if I were to uh, label myself as any kind of uh, religious person, I'd have to say that Buddhism is my preferred uh, uh, belief system. But in Buddhism, there's a saying: uh, first thought, best thought, and that you know teaches you to rely, like not overthink things, and rely on uh, your your gut instincts uh, once they've been cultivated to be reliable. But unfortunately, in, sci- in in the creation of science fiction, first thought, best thought is not always uh, a good uh, rule to follow. Because having thought of a swimming pool, you know, just a generic swimming pool, uh, you, uh, you can't stop there. You really have to say, well, okay, here's here's a, w- a world, a future where they do have anti gravity and force fields, and and what would a swimming pool look like? And there have been some famous um, instances of zero gravity swimming pools like in space where it's just like a giant sphere of water and you enter it from any angle and stuff so that was probably in the background of my mind too but but um so some of this is subconscious some of it is is purely uh like straining your brain to try to conceive of something that hasn't really been done before yeah. No, I, I I thought it was really cool. And I, I love those. Yeah. Like whenever I think when you read a science fiction novel, you want novelty, you know, you want things you've never imagined yes. before. And so, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that's part of the duty. If you're hoping to entertain your readers and uh, justify your paycheck and, and hmm. maybe even push the genre forward a little, you know, science fiction has been characterized as a vast uh, conversation across the centuries. And it's, it's famously true that, uh, you know, uh, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, uh, comes up with, uh, uh, the War of the Worlds and then somebody else, um, uh, answers him. There was a famous, uh, reply novel to, uh, War of the Worlds called, uh, Edison's Conquest of Mars. It came out not too long after War of the Worlds, but the writer, 
whose name I'm blanking on now, he was so incensed that like the Martians came and, and screwed up Earth that he had Thomas Edison mounting a uh, revenge campaign where they, he went to Mars in his own rocket ships and, and took down the Martians and stuff. So this that's kind of a superficial, silly uh uh, part of the conversation, but, but, you know, still entertaining. So, but you can see it in science fiction, like, uh, uh, you know, Heinlein will invent a, a certain concept and then, and then you see that same idea slightly modified popping up in a, uh, Larry Niven story or a Theodore Sturgeon story or something. So this vast dialogue or, or, uh, conversation that science fiction has been engaged in, uh, that's part of the whole thing too. It's like, uh, okay, I'm going to put something in my story that kind of riffs on, on some other famous, uh, uh, thing and maybe extends it and broadens it a little bit. Well, right. I definitely felt like I detected some references in here to other you know, works of science fiction and, and so on. I mean, like you have the Red Hook Combine, which I assume is a reference to the horror Red Hook by yes. Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, at one point, a character has a weapon. It's described as an Esher Brothers protein liquescer, yeah. which I think is a reference to the weapon shops of Esher oh, by yeah. A.E. Van Vogt. Absolutely, yeah. I, it, you know, they're little Easter eggs that uh, hopefully, you know, if you're familiar with it, they give you a little, a little uh, jolt of... Uh, pleasurable recognition and yet if you're not familiar with it because you don't you know every um in the comic book field um which which i adore and i've worked a tiny bit in but in the comic book field there was a saying every comic is somebody's first comic and so you have to kind of keep that in mind you don't want to write down or simplify or or write something naive, but on the other hand, you know, I, I like to picture some 13-year-old person uh, stumbling on the Summer Thieves and, and maybe, you know, uh, imprinting on it the same way I imprinted on Jack Vance and, and Chip Delaney. And uh, so you do have to, uh, you can put in these little Easter eggs, but uh, hopefully if you, if you don't get them, the flow of the narrative and your appreciation of it is not, is not damaged. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one more. So this is a, 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 a quote from the book. It says, Brial Saldivir returns with title to a very small ring world at whose center hung a strange artificial star, but the orbit of the ring world was decaying, irreparable yeah. by current technology, and it was fit only for quick salvage. So that's, if people don't know, that's a reference to the ring world engineers by Larry Niven, yeah. which is it's kind of a funny yes. story behind that. Yeah. Well, you know, this... Um uh, it seems silly to, you know, you like to have some fresh invention and novelty, but, but, um, the toolkit of science fiction is so enormous now, and it seems silly to, uh, reinvent the wheel. You know, Larry Niven, as far as I know, uh, was the first person to conceive of, of such a structure as the ring world. He might've had some, uh, Obviously, you know, real physicists like Freeman Dyson were uh, speculating on all these bizarre uh, mega structures like the Dyson sphere. And uh, I'm sure, you know, Niven was probably reading their stuff and getting inspired by them. Uh, the ring world actually, I think, is, is a Dyson sphere, but just is like can be technically classified as a segment of a Dyson sphere. So he so Niven probably was. Um, uh, inspired by Freeman Dyson's writing, and yet he created something absolutely unique. And having done so, um, 
uh, it seems a shame not to for other writers not to at least uh, uh, borrow his uh, his play toy uh, for a little usage of our own. Right, and the, the story that I the way I heard the story, and you may know more about this than I do, but that Niven wrote Ringworld. And then a bunch of nerds were kind of like, "Wait, this this ring world is unstable. Yes. It would inevitably drift out off off course and fall into the the star." Yeah. So then he wrote a follow up book called "The Ring World Engineers," where they have to yeah. fix it so that doesn't happen. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's there's part of your dialogue too. We can't discount. Uh, you know, science fiction is unique in the. Uh, intensity of its fandom. I mean, even if you look at the current state of fandom, um, uh, 90% of it, I would say, revolves around uh, uh, Fantastica. That This term, Fantastica, with a K, was coined a few years ago by the famous critic John Clute, and he wanted an omnibus term that incorporated any non-mimetic writing, whether it was Stephen King or Larry Niven or uh, uh, Borges or anybody who dealt in the fantastic, uh, whether it was Hard SF or, or Lord of the Rings or whatever, pure horror, they could be lumped under this umbrella term, Fantastica. Uh, and so I found it very useful. I keep I keep referring to it. But, but the fandoms today, you know, I would say, well, let's let's exclude music fandom because obviously that's another whole, uh, you know, all the people who follow K-pop and so on, they're a whole fandom of their own, uh, Beyonce's fan fans and so on. But in terms of audiovisual media and, and printed media, if you look at it, 90% of the fandoms revolve around Fantastica, you know, there, so, um, there's something about, um, uh, there's something about this kind of writing that inspires passionate, devoted readers, and their feedback has been essential down the decades in, uh, refining the genre and, uh, uh, giving feedback and and so on. So, yeah, we can't can't discount um, th- those fans who who taught Larry Niven. He had to, you know, correct uh, correct the orbit of his thing. Yeah, well, and, and when you talk about uh, just how passionate people are about about fantasy and science fiction and so on, I mean, I, I really see um, fantasy and science fiction as as sort of like religion. You know that. It's these these sort of miracle stories and powers uh, stories of superheroes and larger than life events that people have yes. always throughout history have always been the most um, committed to, you know, and like today, maybe it's X-Men comics and it yeah. used to be, you know, r- you know r- the religions of antiquity, but it's all all sort of in the same wheelhouse. Yes, that's a very, a very astute and good observation. And I think you're let me just look something up here. I think you're echoing the. um uh, an argument that was put forward by Grant Morrison, one of the premier and most innovative um, uh, comic book writers of, uh, of of our contemporary times, and he had a um, nonfiction book come out. Let me see if I can find it here, where um, he considered this notion of, um, yes, here it is. It came out in 2011, and it was called Super Gods. And um, 
Uh, I'm ashamed to say I haven't read the whole book, but I read a review at the time, which made it stick in my in my head. And uh, that's Grant Morrison's thesis: is that uh, uh, comics and and other allied uh, fictions uh, take the place uh, to a large extent of these creation myths and and uh, the stories of uh, Zeus and and uh, Literally, of course, in the case of Thor, you know, that's a repurposing of ancient myths. <laughs> uh, so, um, yes, I think I think you've hit upon something there, very very crucial to what makes these stories uh, so so interesting. Uh, uh, if we look in the in the mystery field, which I you know have a passion for, and I've, I've done, as I said, several mystery novels, um, there is a there is a passionate fandom, but I don't think it. Um, it's more of a non-interactive fandom. I think it doesn't, uh, they're appreciative and they, you know, have favorites and, and stuff, but they don't, it's not like there's a feedback loop, uh, as far as I can see between the writers and the readers. So there's, there's definitely something unique about, about, uh, the fans of, uh, uh, Fantastica. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one um, one book that I sort of flashed back to very heavily reading The Summer Thieves is, is one I read in high school, but it was Candide by Voltaire. Yes, of just course. Just uh, uh, it's funny you and I both encountered it in high school, and it's it's stuck uh, ever since. It's just such a perfect template where you take you take this poor you know uh, poor innocent soul. He he might he or she might be. Uh, uh, very bright and uh, good-natured, and and have a lot of potential and stuff, but they just haven't been exposed to uh, to uh, the seedy side of life or the uh, destructive or evil side of life. And when they do, it's a uh, it's like going through the crucible. It's a test of their character. It's a refinement, a maturation of their character, and uh, how they emerge uh, says a lot about. Uh, uh, the nature of their personality and, and also the times, the, you know, the times that they have to live through. And you can see it. Um, uh, it's just ever since Voltaire was genius enough to come up with Candide, it's been used uh, so many times. Obviously, uh, one of the <laughs> more notorious examples was Terry Southern's uh, famous 60s novel, Candy, which it was a female Candide, and she just went through, you know, this kind of ribald uh, 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 odyssey that uh took her from you know pure innocence to kind of uh, a jaded wiser figure so uh yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing template i ha wrote another novel earlier uh called joe's liver which is kind of an obscure title i wanted to call it something different but the publisher uh, pick that, and uh, it, it's a long story as to why it's called Joe's Liver. It makes sense in terms of the book, but that's that's another Candide novel that I did. It, it's uh, about this poor orphaned immigrant from the Caribbean who uh, uh, crosses the border illegally and just uh, has his... Uh, he he has a certain conception of America, and it's just it's just kind of blown away <laughs> by all the by all the vile, uh, manipulative Machiavellian people that he meets in his in his progress to uh, become a good citizen of the country. <laughs> 
Because because there's a a book within this world. There's a book called The Constellations of Beetle Egmont that sounded sort of like a Candide style book to me. I was yes. I wasn't sure is that a, is that a reference to anything or no no that was just a, unless it's some kind of subconscious thing. Yeah, that's the book that uh, the protagonist reads on on the long voyage when he's trying to kind of uh, get some solace about life. No, I just. Uh, uh, that's one of the great things, you know, if you're going to build a culture, uh, from the ground up, it has to include pretty much everything, you know, it had, there has to be like a, a canonical, uh, library of texts that the characters know and entertainment media and past historical events and stuff. So inserting those little bits kind of, uh, uh, at, at good points throughout the tale, I think, um, uh, contributes to the verisimilitude of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so at one point in the book, people who cross these, you, you mentioned that there's these firms, corporation entities yeah. that, that run everything, there's five of them. Yeah. And at one point, people who cross them get deplatformed. Yes. And I was just curious, is that just kind of a joke or do you, how do you feel about deplatforming? Well, you know, I uh, am not a fan of that. I believe I'm, I'm the old school, you know, the, the cure for bad speech is more speech. Um, that's, uh, that's a classic uh, line of attack or belief that's, that's uh, informed our country since the beginning. And uh, uh it, to me, you know, a multiplicity of voices uh, will be the sh- the best technique for drowning out the the insane or or bad or destructive voices. So um, I don't think squelching squelching never works. You can you know you try to. Uh, you try to silence something and you drive it underground and it becomes stronger by the persecution. So uh, to me, the kind of deplatforming that we experience nowadays is uh, not a good thing. In the uh, in, in my novel, I adopt the term to indicate a kind of retribution imposed by whatever authority exists based on infractions, uh, you know, actual criminal infractions. So I figured if I could, if I could kind of turn this term around, it would, um, uh, maybe, uh, give us a little more insight into, into what is actually involved and maybe kind of minimize or humanize the term a little bit. Yeah, I guess, I guess I should explain. So in this world, because the corporations kind of run everything, they can just shut to if they quote deplatform you and shut down shut down the nano machines inside your body, you yeah. die. Well, that so. would be the ultimate. Yeah, that would be the ultimate step. They could just make you catatonic as a kind of a partial <laughs> partial uh, retribution. But I I um, experimented with that idea a little bit. See, now it's funny over the course of a career. Uh, any writer, I think, will will take their ideas and uh, they'll twist their own ideas and and play with them and uh, repurpose them and and maybe make them more sophisticated. But in my story called Wiki World, which I uh, uh, used as the the title for the the book, which contains that story among others, Wiki World, uh, I have a trade war going on. 
And uh, it's set, this is the wiki world is set, you know, just a few decades in the future. And it kind of plays on that notion of the Internet of Things, where um, common uh, appliances and, and stuff are uh, all uh, digitized and they speak to each other and, and they can be hacked and so forth. And um, so in wiki world, uh, the trade war uh, consists of um, countries. Uh, uh, shutting down their uh, products that they've sold to other to other countries, and then they get retaliated on and stuff. So you can see, I was playing with this idea. Uh, you know, I wrote that story. I don't know, maybe fifteen years ago. So um, if you're if you're in this business long enough, you you tend to go back and and look at your past work and say, you know, that was I didn't quite exploit that idea fully. Maybe I better. Uh, uh, dig it up and uh, and kind of try to reanimate it and look at it from a different angle. Yeah, and I, I think it works really well as satire because it just it takes a real thing and just sort of pushes it a little bit, you know, yes. uh, further into absurdity. But I mean, like if you get kicked off of YouTube or kicked off Twitter or something, yeah. like you're not literally dead, but right. you can pretty much oh, yeah. end your career or end your livelihood or yes, whatever. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the current... Uh, you know, not to not to use buzzwords or or uh, words that have been uh, weaponized, but you know, cancel culture is a real thing, and uh, it uh, it can uh, have some devastating effects on on people. And we need to, like any tool or weapon, uh, you know, uh, it, it can have positive uses. I guess if you're uh, uh, you know trying to stop anti anti-vax uh, sentiment that you think is harming the whole planet, you know, so maybe, maybe it's a, it's good to deploy some of it there, but then, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's blowback and there's fallout from, from any kind of such interventions. And we really have to, uh, uh, use them very sparingly and, and with a little more wisdom than I think we have in the past. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. I think that it should be just an absolute last resort, any yeah. sort of deplatforming or disinvitation yeah. or censorship or anything. Yeah. Now I also, uh, had, uh, a little bit of, um, um, it's not quite the same thing, but in my story called the dish ran away with the spoon, you know, based on the famous nursery rhyme. Um, I also looked at the internet of things and how, um, uh, how there might be uh, hacking challenges involved with uh, this this notion of making all our you know a smart refrigerator talk to uh, a smart washing machine and uh, what might happen uh, in those circumstances and and once again that story um, and my thinking on this was inspired by the great Robert Sheckley a name that's not on the tip of everyone's tongues uh, these days but Sheckley was a major, major writer in the 50s and 60s and inspired many people, and he's still very readable today. Um, uh, and he was just an ironic, sardonic, uh, cynical humorist uh, in, in the SF field. And uh, uh, his, his 
fiction always included a lot of devices that had gotten too smart for their own good, it, much in the manner of Philip K. Dick, you know, where the, the taxi cab is arguing with you about the robotic taxi cab is arguing with you about where to, where you want to go. So that kind of, you can see it's that kind of lineage of ideas, um, that just persist. Uh, here I am 50 years after these guys still trying to make sense of, of these ideas. Yeah. Um, all right, we're running a little short on time here, but um, you did mention at the beginning that you, um, or, and also it says on the book, it says that you hope to explore the worlds of the Quinnery in more detail in future novels. Yes. Is there that, anything more to that's, say? That's, that? um, you know, that's kind of like some good juju that we're putting out there. It's like, it's like aspirational, <laughs> it's like aspirational uh, positive thinking. I, you know, I don't have a commitment yet from the publisher. They're abiding uh, their time, but we do have certain signs of interest. So the second book, uh, now that I'm going to employ the same characters, I've got a little better sense of uh, where it's going. But um, the uh, there would be at least three more books named after uh, uh, the seasons, because that's obviously a template that I've set up. So the, uh, uh, the second book would be called uh, The Autumn Castaways, and um, it would it would take our uh, uh, trio of main characters out into the stars again, and as you might guess from the title, uh, uh, they end up on a voyage that does not go according to what they hope it goes. And and with luck, there'll be some good exotic environments and and uh, another cat uh, uh, a troop of good supporting players and uh, maybe some commentary on our 21st century life as all science fiction uh, tends to do. I don't know if you've ever come across that uh, notion. Once again, I'll cite John Clute, the esteemed uh, critic and, and personal friend uh, of mine. But he, um, about 20 or 25 years ago, he came up with the notion of the real year. And that is no matter what, uh, you know, if a science fiction novel says it's set in 2250 and you read it and you say, uh, no, this is really about, uh, t uh, about, um, the year, uh, uh, 2021, because that's, uh, you can see there's kind of an allegorical substrate, uh, or, uh, underneath this book about the future. So the real year, uh, 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 has to figure in in a science fiction novel too. So hopefully by the time I get to write the Autumn Castaways, uh, I'll have something coherent to say about this crazy uh, pandemic that we are still in the midst of. But you would say it's just a matter of of public. Like you're all you're raring to go on, and it's just a matter of how much demand there is from readers. Yes, exactly. Yes. Series. So if if all your loyal listeners can go out and <laughs> and um, say some good things based on their own judgment about the book, then maybe uh, we can drum up some support for the sequel. Which you know I'll probably write anyway. Most of my career has not been a case of. Uh, people throwing money at me. Usually I have to produce hmm. the product and uh, convince somebody that it's worth, it's worth doing. So uh, I'm used to it by now. I've hung in there. My first short story sale was 1977 and I was still in college. It was kind of a fluky thing. I didn't really uh, get into serious writing until many years later. But if you count 1977 as my starting point, uh, uh, I've been hanging in there for a good number of years now, so I think I think maybe I could I could uh, stand the uh, 
the marathon for a little longer yet. <laughs> well, no, and I would definitely love to see more books in the series because it's it's really fun. I mean, you mentioned Robert Sheckley. We actually did an episode on Sheckley a couple weeks ago. Wow, that's great. You're helping. Um, you're helping to keep uh, the history and a valuable career alive. Thank you, David. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Thank thank you. But yeah, but I mean, in addition to you know Vance and Wolf and uh, Voltaire, this also yep. kind of reminded me of Sheckley and Douglas Adams. It, it has a sort of a very sort yeah. of fun, energetic, Thank humorous you so much. Yeah. Uh, well, side to it. You, you winkled out my secret uh, Sheckley uh, affiliation there. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we should probably start wrapping this up. Do you have uh, any final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Well, uh, uh, my current work in progress um, is a standalone novel. I'll just tell you the elevator pitch version. It's about a woman who finds out she can see across the multiverse. She can see various uh, alternate time streams. So that's that's all I'll tell you about the book, but it's it's kind of fun. I'm having a... It's going slower than my usual writing progress. I don't know why. I think I've got uh, a little bit of pandemic brain and uh, just uh, maybe uh, maybe even a little... Fatigue, but it's it's moving along. It's it's not uh, moving quite as fast as I would like, but I hope to have that finished soon and uh, find a home for it. So uh, once again, something and and it's got a, the book has a contemporary setting, so retreating a little bit from the galactic frontier. But uh, then that that should stoke me up to go back to uh, to the Quinnery. Yeah, no, no, that all sounds great. And so let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Paul Filippo about his new novel, The Summer Thieves. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. David, you, you, you and your show uh, are part of the uh, reason why uh, writers uh, keep on writing. It's just to feel that there's uh, an audience out there and a, a smart, appreciative uh, bunch of people. So thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Paul Filippo for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.